Hi, Shauna. <laughs> Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, break our hearts again with your great love for us, written before all the world on a cross. Come, Holy Spirit, and touch the words of my mouth. Touch the ears of the people. Grant us a hearing heart. Grant me a speaking tongue. Lord, and do all this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last night, I was uh, on Popular Mechanics' website. And uh, I went to one of the articles, and it said, 11 rocket launch epic fails. And so, by the way, if you're ever invited to the launch of an S-300 Soviet-style missile, don't go. They don't work very well. <laughs> they were epic failures. Well, Palm Sunday, it starts off great, and then it just ends in this epic fail. It's a term that has spawned its own industry of websites, like the one I looked at last night, dedicated to life's losers. Every form of uh, pathetic pratfall or stupendous social gaffe or boneheaded blunder is now immortalized forever for the whole world to watch on YouTube. Uh, we might get a weird satisfaction of seeing all this stuff online, but it is really something Really, is it something to base a world religion on? Is that how you want to start a world religion? I mean, seriously, how could you go from nearly universal adulation to getting yourself crucified in the space of a week? Think about it. We start off with Jesus entering Jerusalem at the center of a teeming crowd that is hailing him as the messianic king of Israel, the son of David. And he's gone out of his way to orchestrate these events, to communicate to the people that he is indeed the one spoken of by all the prophets. And coming from the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey, even the chants of the people all point to Jesus as the promised one. He's got the big mo. He's got momentum. He's on a roll. And as he enters the eastern gate of Jerusalem, everyone in that crowd knows what the Messiah King will do. He will lead the armies of God up to the Antonia Fortress where the oppressive power of the pagan invaders is ensconced in the form of the Roman garrison. And he will then slaughter the enemies of God and establish the throne of David and will begin to rule the earth. But what does Jesus do actually? Well, he immediately heads not to the Antonia Fortress but to the temple the heart of the religious establishment, and then he trashes the bookstore and the gift shop. Well, no, not really. He overturns the money-making scheme of the mainline religious establishment, and he calls them all a bunch of thieves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Ooh, that is a bad move, Jesus. These are your own people. We know that the temple authorities have their issues, but you need these guys on your side. This is an epic fail. 
And the next day, when Jesus shows up in the temple again, the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish people ask him by what authority he was doing and saying these things. And instead of being polite, instead of trying to get on their good side, he makes them look foolish in front of the crowds. He embarrassed and humiliated a group of men who just don't expect to be treated that way. And again, you could have played this differently, but instead, no, Jesus seems to be determined to have yet another epic fail. And he didn't just leave it there. He told the intelligent, learned, holy, important religious people, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into heaven before you guys get in it. And he just kept on saying more and more provocative things like that. And he didn't call out... Um, He didn't just call out the mainline establishment. He also went after the the pietistic fundamentalists, the evangelicals. He called out the scribes and the Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would would enter go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Makes you feel all warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? It's like he's just deliberately trying to make enemies. Big fail, Jesus. Finally, Even one of his closest friends who's had enough of this very unmessianic behavior and betrays Jesus to the religious authorities for uh, 30 pieces of silver. And when that happens, things really begin to unravel. When the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, all of his friends run away. And then the leaders of his disciples the leader of his disciples who had followed him to where he was holding, where they were holding the phony trial, denies him three times. Or in Jesus' case, who is playing uh, Peter twice this morning, six times. The mainline religious authorities torture truth itself in order to condemn him. The average people of Jerusalem scream for his blood. The political establishment forfeits justice to convict him and has him scourged within an inch of his life for no reason. The military police torture him and revile him and strip him and crown him with thorns and nail him to a cross. And the religious elite and the fundamentalists stand around to insult him as he gasps for breath as he is hung on a gibbet. And who is at the right hand and at the left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom, when he's lifted up in his mock coronation and the writ declaring him king of the Jews is nailed to the throne of the cross? Well, it's not his disciples, James and John, who were just a week before scheming to literally be be installed on his right and his left hand. Instead, it's the scum of the earth. Trash-talking robbers who mock and scorn Christ, even as the gaping maw of death yawns before them. All of humanity spends itself in an orgy of hatred and bloody violence against this man who just seven days earlier humbly enters Jerusalem riding on a common beast of burden, a donkey. 
And even at the very end, Jesus doesn't die with the quiet dignity of a philosopher like Socrates or with the heroic cry of freedom like a hero, like William Wallace. Instead, he just gasps out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even God has abandoned him. This is utter defeat, utter loneliness, utter failure. And that's almost how it ends, but not really, because God has not abandoned him. This well-planned failure, this well-planned failure had to be played out to its bitter end. Because the epic fail here was not Jesus. The epic fail here was the lost and rebellious and condemned human race. He had to embrace epic failure that way because that is exactly where we are. Humanity's situation is just that bad. Just as bad as Jesus has showed us through every moment of this epic failure. Your situation right now without God is just that bad. We all, somebody got mad at me when I said this one time. You know what? You'll just have to get mad at me. We all suck at life. We wrap this story in so much dewy-eyed religious paraphernalia that it totally loses its power to reveal the abject, relentless hopelessness of our lives without God's intervention. We attenuate its horror because ultimately it points back to us as epic failures. Jesus became the epic fail so that in him we might become the ultimate success of being reunited with a loving God. Or as St. Paul said it, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as Jesus breathes his last, the gospel tells us that, in fact, Jesus had not been forsaken by God. In fact, far from being an epic fail, far from an insignificant, isolated, historical blip, far from just another crucifixion in an empire where crucifixions happen every day. No, the entire cosmos is shaken by the event. The sky turns dark. The earth shakes. The rocks split. The curtain of the temple is ripped in tomb and the two and the tombs are opened. And even the centurion who oversaw Christ's supreme moment of humiliation and torment has to confess, truly this was the Son of God. So this was epic, but it is not an epic fail. In fact, this is splendid triumph. As St. Theodore said, how splendid the cross of Christ. It brings life, not death, light, not darkness, paradise, not its loss. It is the wood on which the Lord, like a great warrior, was wounded in hands and feet and side and healed thereby our wounds. A tree had destroyed us. A tree now brought us life. 
The tree of the garden destroyed us. The tree of the cross now brings us life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we stand before the mystery of the cross. Our hearts are hard and wayward, wrapped up in the pleasures and distractions and the worries and anxieties of this world. We pray for the miracle now to begin. That like water from a spring rain washing over baked clay, you would begin to seep into the cracks of our rock-hard hearts and begin to soften them and make them pliable in your hands and break our hearts again with the very core of the good news that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Lord, beginning now and for all of this week, And until we gather at the empty tomb, at the vigil of Easter, Lord, make this story true in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. It's not in here. No creed. Okay, you may be seated. (laughs) My bad.